You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Today we have a very special guest, and I want to introduce Professor Elizabeth Pate Cornell. Uh, Professor Cornell was born in Senegal, and she attended schools in Senegal and then moved to France. She ended up receiving her master's degree in operations research and then her PhD in engineering economic systems, both at Stanford University. Then she became the chair of the management science and engineering department, which is the position she's held for the last 10 years. Professor Pate Cornell is a member of the National Academy of Engineering and on the boards of many public companies. She is an expert in the field of risk analysis, and today we're going to hear her insights on risk and risk management from an engineering perspective. These are topics that are very relevant to all of those people in the room who are interested in entrepreneurship. Thank you, Tina. It's a great pleasure to be here. And as you can hear, yes, I was, I was not born in Brooklyn. So uh, I'm glad that I'm bringing to you some, uh, some of my, uh, my slides so that you, uh, you can follow perhaps more easily. So I'm going to talk about risks, and I'm going to talk about risks from a different perspective. Uh, yes, entrepreneurship. In fact, my, uh, what I've done in that, uh, in that domain is academic entrepreneurship and the department of management science and engineering. But what I'm going to try to show you is how we think about risks in the world of engineering using systems analysis, probability, decomposing the problem, using all the information at our disposal, and trying to put all this together in a systematic manner. Okay, so what I'm, uh, what I'm going to talk about is sailing through life, business, and service in a world that's larger than us. I mean, but I, I love sailing, okay? <laughs> and I've, I've sailed particularly in the Mediterranean, I'm not a particularly good sailor, but uh, I think that I've learned a few lessons from it. And so I will use uh, that image occasionally. And a world larger than us, uh, I think, is important. Uh, you have heard very often, fail often and fail early, but what I like to add to it, but not if you can avoid it. And especially if it is the life or the money of somebody else that's, uh, that's at stake. In other terms, you can do all kinds of things with your own uh, resources. But be careful when we're talking about other people. Now, this cartoon um, shows you three, two little characters that are at the bottom of a cliff, and there is this very threatening rock on top of it. And then they look at it, and it's risk perception. Then they talk about it, and it's called here risk assessment. And then they run away from it when it falls, it's called risk management. I don't call that risk management, I call it crisis management. That means the thing is falling on you, you run away. But in terms of risk management, they could have thought about other things like uh, either making it fall earlier or perhaps uh, tying it to uh, the cliff. Now, the problem, the problem is that there you are uh, balancing over a sea of crocodiles and be careful, and you have now here a little cartoon where the consultant in risk management uh, is facing his client, and the client says, be careful, all you can tell me is be careful, and what I'm going to show you today is that we can do better than that. So how do we show people uh, how to, quote unquote, be careful? So what I've learned in real life is don't sail into a storm without looking into it. And let me tell you, last summer, 
we were sailing between Corsica and, and Sardinia with friends of mine, and the, you know, we were on a 50-foot uh, boat, so not, not something huge. But the captain said, oh, we are leaving immediately, and we're going to uh, put the, um, the sails at half mast, just harder. And I said, well, why is that? So, well, let's look at the weather forecast. And of course, sure enough, we saw what was coming, and he was absolutely right. We left immediately with half the sail, and we made it without any problem. We were the only sailboat in, in, uh, in the area. OK, so you have to be confident about what the danger is and what you can take. The first thing that you want to do when you look at risks and you look at what's ahead of you, I am not that interested in what is behind you when looking at past failures, except, of course, to the degree where, that we learn from them. But probability and logics is a good place to start when you look systematically at the chances of the outcomes and the consequences. And I'm going to start with a few jokes and mistakes. And I'm sure you have heard the old joke about the guy who was carrying a bomb with him because the chances of two bombs in the same place were small. OK, well, that you could not do anymore anywhere. But the problem if you, <laughs> you would be caught uh, before you go f very far. But the problem here is the problem of dependent and independent events. And what you have to recognize very often is what are these dependencies that you're facing. Now, another one was the guy who wanted to eliminate all the pedestrian crossings because more accidents happen there than elsewhere. Sure enough, that was a stupid idea. But why is it that you have more accidents on pedestrian crossings because many more people cross at pedestrian crossings? Now, given that they cross the road, it's safer to be at pedestrian crossings nonetheless. So you see here, the problem is one of the prior probabilities and the base rate. Now, there was a guy who wanted to go as fast as he could on the road because he argued that the risk was smaller since he spent less time going from A to B. Now, that was a friend of mine who told me that one day. I did not stay for very long in his car. And <laughs> in fact, another one, a friend of mine, who was driving and text texting, or he was playing with his... Uh, and he explained to me that he had done it all his life and he had not had an accident yet. And I said, well, that's too bad. And see, of course, that's the problem of rare events. And that, too, uh, I did not uh, take hands down. So now, here is the problem. In the world of uncertainties, you very seldom have statistics. And that is where you have to think straight. And the, w when you do a risk assessment, you have to look at scenarios. What is it that you're going to face or you, that you can face? The probabilities and the consequences and let me say that risk is not an expected value. It's not the probability multiplied by the consequences, because very often you have rare events with very high consequences. So the, what you need is a distribution on these <coughs> outcomes. OK, then you can use the result to do several things. One is to check that you can live with the, with the results. And if not, how you are going to allocate the resources that you're going to dedicate to the reinforcement of that system. And I'm going to show you that there are many ways of doing that. So first, I'm going to talk a little bit about myself. Uh, so my, my own experience was between France, first Africa, and then France, and then the US. And that was a risk. I mean, think about uh, coming here with 200 words of English in a world where there were very few women in engineering, in science and engineering at that time. I remember being slightly nervous about it and deciding to go ahead. Uh, I then studied math and physics. Again, that was not and then engineering. And it was not a very common thing to do. But perhaps 
the greater risk, greater risk that I took at that point is while the tenure clock was ticking somewhere between MIT, where I was a sit-on prof and here, I had two babies. And think about it, that was a risk that I took and that we took, obviously, my husband and I, and we knew that uh, we had a challenge, which was to balance the elements of life. <coughs> it was a personal life and a professional life. And make sure that you didn't shortchange anybody while doing what you were supposed to do. Okay, and talking about real risks, real risks of real life, I'm going to start with a very simple example and a very real one to show you all the different sources of data in risk analysis. And risk analysis is not only for airplanes, satellites, and nuclear power plants, but consider the following real problem to me. I had a two-year-old little boy who really liked to tumble down the stairs. And we were about to move in a house where on the landing of the stairs there was a sharp post. And immediately, without writing anything, I thought about the risk that he could kill himself. So here are the data that I had. The frequency of falls, it was roughly once a week. So, statistics. But, of course, I hope that he was stopping, going to stop doing that. I, I had an engineering model of a baby as a ball, one-third of which is the head. How is that? <laughs> a very subtle engineering. And uh, there was a sharp corner on the landing of that, uh, the stairs. And I had, and I still have, an excellent neighbor who happens to be a doctor of emergency rooms. So I said, what do you think? And he said, well, one chance in 10 that he might uh, really hit himself. So you see the result, if you put all these together, from very different sources of data, gave me a risk of accident of one in 30 per week, which was enormous. And I, I found a risk management solution that was an engineering solution. I put three baskets, soft baskets, one inside of the other, in front of the post, tested it with a basketball, and it's the equivalent, in fact, of springs in series. There you had it. And by the way, not a, ga a gate at the top of the stairs because uh, someone would have left it open. Okay, so the, the, the lesson in this is that there are many kinds of different data that you can use, statistics, models, expert opinions, and when things, when it's very important to me, that's the way I think about it. Okay, now let's look at professional risks and academia. Uh, I've never created a company, so I'm not going to pretend, to pretend that. What I did, though, is to be the first uh, chair of the Department of MSNE, Management Science and Engineering. And it was a merger of three very di different departments with very different cultures and different per personalities, different kinds of emphasis from operations research to social science. And I'm happy to say that 10 years later, it's still going strong. Now, all risks don't need to be quantified. But I would say that for many risks management <coughs> decisions, it does help, and I'm going to show you, particularly for complex systems and new situations. The most interesting risk problems are with risks that we have never seen, systems that we have never seen, and things that are completely new. Uh, the others, that's much easier. Okay, so how do we think about risk analysis, and uh, how do I approach it? Well, when I want to explain what I do in life, I say I'm going to see experts, and I'm going to say, tell me how it works, whatever it is. So let's talk about satellites for a minute. Let's figure out how it might fail, guidance system, propulsion system, electric system, optics, optical systems. In other terms, any of the critical functions of that engineered systems that you need to have for the whole thing to work uh, might be a source of failure. 
Then let's find ways to reinforce it. There, there are many different things that you can do. One of them is to make some of the, the components stronger. For example, you can have stronger pillars or stronger beams in a, in a building. Another one is to put redundancies behind the system. Another one is to manage it better and to make sure that you give the right incentives to the people who are the operators of your system. And we're going to see in a minute why it really matters. So then we're going to find uh, the best way of doing that allocation. And again, as you can see, experts matter enormously. Now, as a risk analyst, I'm not making the decision. I'm just providing information to a decision maker who has his or her own preferences. And um, I want to help that person to the degree that that person wants help uh, to make a number of decisions. For example, adopt a new technology. As you know, nanotechnologies these days are sometimes uh, feared by some. What's the real risk? Design a system. Site a facility, for example, a chemical plant, where do you want to put it? Manage inspection and maintenance. There, for example, the airlines. I've worked with the airlines with a group of students from the uh, 250B, which is the, the project uh, class, um, the project course of my, that follows my class. And the question is really, how do you do the maintenance on schedule? How often do you do it? For what parts? There, the Federal Aviation Administration has a lot to say. And how do you do the inspection on demand? And how do you manage that? And then finally, adopt and implement government regulations. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, for example, uh, makes decisions regarding the safety of nuclear power plants, even though uh, the industry itself uh, does a lot of the policing. Okay, so as you can see, I see risk analysis in this context as part of systems engineering. So let me give you examples of things that we have looked at uh, in, uh, in my group, uh, offshore platforms that was after the Piper Alpha accident in the North Sea on a perfect, per perfectly clear day when in fact uh, there was uh, um, a problem at the interface essentially between the, the riser and the platform and the whole thing exploded in a big ball of fire but it had started because there was a failure somewhere and a leak and the leak was because a young, inexperienced worker had fixed around 6 o'clock at night a pump with a, with a valve inside, had failed to tag it, decided to call it a day. No one was behind him. And uh, that, uh, that uh, thing failed when it was called upon later during the night. Medical devices. Uh, we have done quite a lot of work with Ian Peach, for example, one of my, uh, one of my former uh, students, uh, particularly heart cardiac devices. And the other challenge is to know how to begin to test these things. And the test that the FDA uh, now wants on, on a statistical basis will take a very, very long time. So the question is, can we begin to compute the probability of failure to start from and then do an adaptive testing that allows us to use Bayesian methods to update the information as we do that? Space Shuttle, I'm going to show you that in a moment. But also, we have also looked at systems that involve human beings. And I'm going to show you the model of patient risks in anesthesia. And then I found myself one day uh, looking at intelligence and counterterrorism. And that's because, much to my surprise, and in a very non-political way, I, was, I became a member of the President's Intelligence Advisory Board. And I looked at the way people were uh, analyzing uh, this intelligent information. And I will show you in a minute a few things that um, 
I wanted to, to put uh, or to inject in that system. So that took me into national security problems and nuclear counterproliferation strategies, which is the thesis of my student, um, David Caswell, whom you know. And uh, the question being, how do you uh, interact with a country that's trying to develop uh, nuclear weapons? So no problem is too big or too small, as you can see, and a wide variety of things, some of which I knew something a priori, I knew something about a priori, some of which I had, had to rely on experts and learn about that. So why do we do that? We do that because of the uncertainties, to make sure, as I said, we can live with the results, and to uh, allocate our resources, again, because we are not infinitely rich. So how do we do it? By decomposing the system. That's really uh, the, the idea, that's systems analysis, and trying to find classes of failure scenarios. We are not getting into exquisite details in all the scenarios of how things can fail, otherwise we would cover the walls. So classes of scenarios so that we can get our, our arms around that. Uh, we include a lot of things that uh, are tricky. <coughs> Dependencies that are very important when failures are dependent in a system, and for one reason, for example, external events, earthquakes. An earthquake will shake this whole building. So all the different components in the building might fail for the same reason, and the earthquake or these external events uh, introduce a common cause of failure. We also include human errors. And believe it or not, people make the same mistakes for the same reasons in many different areas. And what is most interesting to look at is what kind of information do they have? What kind of incentives do you give them? How do you reward them? And what kind of resource constraints do you put on them? To come back to the story of the offshore platform, uh, there, was, there was all incentive at that time in England to push uh, production and somehow, um, let's say, perhaps at the expense of safety. And you don't stop the system to fix it. And that was part of the problem. Okay, so um, we try to look at the way people cut corners because when you ask people to meet very stringent uh, constraints, they will try to satisfy you and sometimes they do things that you would not like. Okay, so do we do it that way generally because we don't have enough statistics at the global level. See, when we started constructing civilian nuclear power plants in this country, we had some experience with nuclear reactors. When I say we, I was not there. But there was some experience with nuclear reactors in the Navy. But there, was n there had never been uh, enough experience with nuclear power plants at launch, and that's where these uh, methods came from, in part. Now, the fact is that the systems evolve. So the statistics that you may have, uh, that you may have accumulated in the last 15 years may or may not be uh, the information that you need. Think of financial crisis. That was exactly the problem. New situations have emerged, and uh, you find yourself with a conjunction of events that you have never seen before, and that's what some people call uh, the perfect storms. As I was saying earlier, of particular interest to me are these accidents that have never happened. And let me just uh, talk about a few of them. Concorde was the, the supersonic uh, uh, transport system, the airplane, and it failed in 2000, but it's not as if we could not see it coming. Uh, there had been about 50 uh, explosions of the tires at takeoff because that's an aircraft that has a very uh, small surface of wings and therefore needed a very long runway. And the te technology of the tires at the time was the technology of the 50s. And so regularly, these tires were exploding with small lozenges of uh, rubber 
that were hitting the plane up until the day when it hit the tank and the whole thing exploded again in a ball of fire. This is one that could have been seen coming and uh, no one had done anything about it in spite of the fact that the tire maker proposed to fix it. Colombia in 2003, that's the space shuttle that also had an accident. And I'm going to show you that years before, we had done a study after Challenger of the, uh, the, the tiles of the space shuttle, where it, the trajectories of the debris that were going to hit the tiles coming from the external tank had been calculated and included in this, uh, in this uh, study. And uh, there was also now a success story, perhaps, I don't know, uh, another accident that never happened. The same students who worked uh, with an airline here on the management of a very popular airplane found out that there was something a bit strange about the flaps and slats of the leading edge. And uh, the problem was corrected before it caused any, um, any accident, which, after all, is, uh, is what we call success. OK, so now I'm going to get into stories. And I'm going to present to you a few things uh, relatively quickly. So let's start with the tiles of the space shuttle. And this is the classic case of an accident that has not happened yet. And so you have to think about it uh, systematically. So we were looking at the first 33 flights. Uh, there had not been any real problem, but there were errors in maintenance. And we knew that for a fact. In fact, I spent half, I remember spending a week at Kennedy Space Center with the technicians under the orbiters in my jeans and sneakers, somehow uh, anonymously perhaps. But what I wanted to figure out is the kinds of errors that they were making when they were in the, under time pressure. And uh, I found out, and I'm going to show you how. So we were trying to compute the, contr the contribution of the tiles to failure risks. We were trying to look at which ones were really the most risk critical. And we were looking at the effects of management on the risk. This is what the tiles look like. Uh, each of them is about uh, eight inches. Inter and the interesting thing is that they are glued on the lattice of filler burns. So each of them has to be glued in a cavity. And in order to gain some time, some of the technicians I found out, one technician at least, that uh, this glue would cure faster if you add water to it. And what he was doing, in fact, was to spit in it. And so the glue was, cu was uh, curing faster, all right? He was gaining time. But of course, that's, uh, that was a dangerous thing to do. So how did we think about it? Well, we looked first at what happens. How, uh, what's the accident mechanism? We have an initial loss of tile or a bunch of them for two reasons. Debris damage, debris hits, or deboning because there is a weak bond. Uh, then uh, at re-entry, uh, there is a cavity now. And the, uh, the flow of gases <coughs> heats up that cavity. You can then lose additional tiles. You expose. The, uh, the aluminum of the orbiter, you can have then hot gases inside, a subsystem malfunction, and you lose the whole mission. So the way we looked at this was by decomposing the system into these different parts, getting all the data that we, ha that we could. Some of them were statistics. For example, uh, we could uh, get the measurements of temperature on, uh, on the uh, shuttle uh, skin. Some others, we needed to go to expert opinions. That's what I've put in red. So what did we find? We found that, in fact, the tiles were not as bad as the astronauts feared. And we showed them a map that, uh, on which we had identified the most risk-critical tiles so that if you had a bit more time to test something before a launch, 
you could stop there. We made all kinds of recommendations for improvement. Uh, some of them were listened to, some of them were not. And unfortunately, the epilogue was the Columbia accident where again, one of the piece of debris from the external tank hit the orbiter and caused the failure. This is the thing of beauty that I presented uh, to the uh, to Kennedy Space Center. And what I had put in darker tones were the most risk critical zones. And we had computed the risks in each of the different zones. It's not symmetric because there's a fuel line running on the external tank that weakens the attachment of the, um, of the insulation. But this was used, it was put as a huge map on the floor. And what they did was to test first and to show me that they had done it, the, the places that we had put in dark. Second case, uh, the patient risks in anesthesia. Now again, for something entirely different. This is a classic case of dynamics of accidents. So the question was, how can we improve the management of anesthesia system to decrease the patient risk? So what we did is to look at all the accident sequences that could occur in the operating room environment. And so first we looked generally at how accidents unfold, how the competence and the alertness of the anesthesiologists influences the factors of risk, and how the management could influence the competence and alertness of these guys. And I'm going to show you what we found. So we did a classic model, and there is only one equation in all my talk. I wanted to show you that to compute the probability of an accident over all the scenarios, we sum over the, all the probabilities of the initiating events, these events that start an accident sequence. For example, a tube disconnect, since the patient needs to receive oxygen in the lungs, multiplied by the probability of an accident once this incident has occurred. And that's where we had to do a dynamic model. And by the way, this is really the, one of the problems that you have in general. When things go bad, how fast is it going to go bad? Uh, so that uh, you can ask yourself well, how much time you have to react. Data sources here were really interesting because we had statistics at both ends of the model and expert opinions in the middle so that we were confident, pretty confident in, in our results. Now, the way we look in general, as I said, at the effect of human and management factors on risk, in our analysis, we start by the failure modes and the events. We look at the way human performance affects these failure modes, and we look at the way management policies affect human performance. And as I said, this is generally incentives and resources. So what kind of management measures did we find to affect the anesthetist's performance? Exactly what happens everywhere. I think this is, it could happen in, uh, in the airlines. It could be pilots instead, work schedule, selection periodic training, experience, supervisions of the, uh, of the residents, which turned out to be a critical problem, and of course, uh, maintenance of the, uh, of the um, equipment. Now, for example, we looked at simulator training, and we said, well, by how much could we decrease the risks if we were asking people to be on the simulator, let's say every year. And we asked many experts on the different parts of the problem, what difference would it make? Let me tell you my best experts were the operating room nurses. They had seen it all, and they knew exactly how people were messing up. And they uh, helped us identify in the accident sequences what it was that a simulator could teach these guys. And it's exactly the same problem as for pilots. You prefer that they uh, encounter these problems on a simulator uh, before uh, they encounter them in life. So it was about 
a risk reduction of 16%, which I think was pretty good. Okay, and by the way, the British told me that this, I was a bit optimistic. So perhaps I'm a bit optimistic, but that's what my experts thought. Then let's go to another uh, problem, which is seismic risk. The one that you face every day if you live in this area. And the other problem is really loads and capacities. What does that mean? It means that at any given place in the Western US, you have a certain risk of having an earthquake that's a ground shaking of a, a particular intensity. For example, the peak ground acceleration. Why is it that buildings fail? Because the load exceeds the capacity, which is precisely the, the capacity, at, uh, the load at which the, um, the building fails. So we have two points in this problem. And you want to decompose it carefully into the two points. First, the seismic loads, and for that, you go to see the seismologists. And second, the structure's robustness, for which you talk to the seismic engineers. So in here, the key to, the, to this problem is to get the right data from the right people. And the use of probability allows you to, again, put your resources across the country um, in places where they are needed the most without burdening everybody uh, and everything with seismic standards that might be excessive in some parts of the US and insufficient in others. And what do we do it, for example, to support building codes? And I'm not going to get through this model. So how do we use the result again to support building codes to tell you what to do with your house if you really want to see that? And after the earthquake that we had, I think it was in 89, I remember reinforcing ours with, uh, again, sheer walls and, and a certain number of things because uh, it, was, uh, it was a good thing to do. But also to assess the robustness of critical facilities. And that means, for example, the bridges in the Bay Area, uh, the uh, nuclear power plants, etc., And the water system that some of you, and the water distribution, distribution system that some of you in the class are going to look at. Another example. Uh, testing of cars in the automotive industry. And that was in a German company, and the question was, uh, to test the whole car would take two days. We have only 10 minutes. Now, someone had decided it was going to be 10 minutes. How do we use them? So we looked first at was, what were the prior probabilities of having a problem in different systems. Then what, what was the probability that these would be caught uh, by the tests? And how do we allocate that time? And then I asked the most indiscreet question, why not 15 minutes or why not uh, 17? So uh, we had a lot of conversation with the engineers. The challenges were the new electronic systems, so I learned a lot more than I wanted about what there is uh, in the electronics of my car. And the problem was to track down the functions and the dependencies, because you have a very large number of monitors and uh, of computers in these cars. And then psychologically, the problem was to ask people to recognize uncertainties, to recognize weaknesses, and to qualify them, to compare them. Well, at the end, it worked. Let me now give you the example of intelligence analysis. So there I arrived, knowing almost next to nothing uh, about it. And the problem of the intelligence community in all countries is the collection and the analysis of uh, information from different sources. First, you, the issues are the uncertainty about the prior the situation a priori, and uh, the uncertainties about the information, and the dependencies of the sources. And so, uh, my um, what I said as a hard joke is if you hear about the sighting of a very famous uh, terrorist in a bar in Moscow, the priors are very low, 
And so you will have to check very carefully, not only the, the source that you have, but if, even if you have several sources. And we also uh, applied this, and so did uh, David Caswell, to the state of a nuclear development program. What are the challenges here? Well, first, in that community, uh, the analysts have been trained to think that they are the ones who should, quote-unquote, make the call. That is, saying it is or it is not. And what I've tried to say, and I think with some success, which is do not pick the most likely hypothesis and present it to the boss, whoever the boss is, as if you were sure of it. So uh, at this point, I think that uh, there has been some difficulties to think about information dependencies and priors. But the idea that the boss in question, and many bosses, <coughs> would much prefer to hear about the uncertainties than not has begun to penetrate that community. Insurance. And, and now again for something entirely different. One day, I got a call from the uh, insurance, uh, from an insurance consortium, and they asked me if I wanted to look with some students of mine at the probability of bankruptcy of uh, property and casualty insurance companies as a function of their age and a function of their size. And I said, why me? Because I'm not a specialist of finance and insurance. And they said, well, that's because we would like to have a systems engineering approach to the problem as opposed to the classic uh, statistics that uh, are used in the financial world. Fine. So uh, with, uh, with uh, one of my doctoral students, Lea Delaris, we looked at what are really the key factors. And of course, insurance companies uh, have become investment bankers into a longer extent. So first, we got some insights into the industry cycles. And that's because after uh, a big event, the uh, rates of insurance become higher, harder. Then when the, uh, when the memory declines, competition is such that the rates begin to decline. And then another one happens. Anyway, there are industry cycles in the rates of premiums and the payments. Second, uh, stochastic process and uncertainty, the performance of the investments which is, of course, where do they put their money, the insurance companies, once you have paid your premium, well, in the market. So there was there a risk to them. Then we looked at the probability of large events and claims. And in this case, it was uh, in large part, let's say, hurricanes, let's say, in Florida. So it may be that this is not uh, stable enough, sta stable either. And then we also looked at quarter awards, and we found out that the quarter awards were gr growing and were very uncertain and random particularly in the southern United States. So we pulled all this together, and we, um, we used all the information we could, but in particular, we interviewed about 20 retired CEOs of insurance companies, and let me say that we learned a lot about that. And the challenges were that they had relied on time series, statistical time series, and in particular in the financial world, on second moment, so the correlations between the market as a whole and, let's say, various securities. And they had difficulties thinking about perfect storms, even though that's exactly what their problem wa was, or something that's called in recent literature the black swan, because we have seen very many um, white swans, but not too many black swans. And my question to the author of the book is now, now that we have seen black swans, what is the probability of a yellow swan? See what I mean? So what does it take to have something that we have never seen? And that forces you to get down to the fundamental mechanisms of how things happen. OK, so now let's see a few lessons that I've learned. 
First, never do a risk analysis for someone who doesn't want to, to know and use the results. We're trying to tell you what data to use, and we're trying to tell you what, what result to find. So this one um, has been one of the problems of NASA at the beginning of the space shuttle program, and I think that was too bad. Look out for the small storm, the big storms, the large storms, and uh, the question is that there is a lot of information in stores, small storms about the big ones, because that's where you see how a number of small events can begin to accumulate, and their combinations may be very rare and take you where you don't want to be. The role of imagination in risk analysis. That's a wonderful phrase that I found in a 9-11 commission report. The director said and wrote in that book, that was Philip Zelikow, uh, that the failure was in large part a failure of imagination. And it was called, of course, an unknown unknown. Well, it was not that much, 9-11 that is, was not that much an unknown unknown. A similar, uh, similar incident had happened when a French airliner had taken off from Algiers, was going to Paris, was taken over by terrorists, had to stop in Marseille for refueling, and was taken over by the French troops at that point. But it was going straight into, uh, apparently, from what I've heard, into one of the buildings in Paris. So it's not as if it was totally unknown unknown. But it is true that it was uh, an unknown, and it was going to be extremely rare. Okay. So some things can be imaginable. So you often know a lot more than you do. And yet, you can, yes, you can use the seat of the pants. Otherwise, take the time to think. That is, in a crisis, you are not going to begin to do, uh, uh, to do a computation. But otherwise, again, small envelope, big envelope, whatever it takes. I've seen a whole risk analysis for this area on the back of an envelope. Someone wanted to show you, I can do it. And it was correct. Uh, but I don't care, uh, just whatever it takes. Warning systems. That's one of the most important parts of risk management. Watch for signals and precursors, and remember that they may not be perfect. To test or not to test. There is a point where you have tested enough, and you have to decide of that, whether it's an aircraft, whether it's a component, it's an electronic component, or whether it's a medical risk. And I was once trying to explain this question of the value of imperfect information to a senator who couldn't believe the example that I'm going to show you. Suppose that you have a one chance in a thousand of having a deadly disease. And you have a test that's not that bad. It has only 5% rate of false positive. Now, if you start doing the computation, you find out that after a positive result, you only have a 2% chance of having the disease. So don't jump yet out the window. Why is it? Imagine that you have these thousand people in front of you. Only one has the disease, one in a thousand. You put all of them to a test, 5% uh, false positive. On average, you're going to get 50 positive results. And yet, only one has the disease, one in 52%. So you see that some of these results are counterintuitive, and so the prior matters and the quality of the test matters. Another challenge is to manage the balance between the technical failure risk and the, and the uh, management failure risk, exceeding the uh, budget and schedule. I talked about the Challenger accident and the pressures on NASA uh, to launch on that day, but also about um, managing people who are tempted to cut corners to meet a deadline. And the story that I told this morning in the course was that of people who were reinforced constructing houses in the Central Valley. And they were up against the deadline, 
They were supposed to put nails around sheer walls, and you know, time was passing. They put one nail out of two because it was going faster. And during the Northridge earthquake, sure enough, uh, some of these houses collapsed, and they are probably in jail for it. But you see, they were given all incentives to meet the deadline and to hide what they were doing. Okay, so many risks are the result of human organizational factors. So as a manager, be very careful of the constraints that you set and of what people are going to do to satisfy you. And you know, I've heard many times that perception is reality. So my response to that is perfect. Let's inject some reality in perception. And that's exactly what we're trying to do by put, giving some risk analysis results that allow you to put things in perspective. And why is it? It's because you may be scared to death by the headlines that you see in the newspapers and that you begin to lose the perspective of the priorities. And if you have a budget and a budget of a country that needs to be uh, spent, it's important that we know what we're doing. And when a risk management is well done, no one hears about it. So success is anonymity. And this is risk management success. You're no longer above the crocodiles, but if you fall, which you hope not to, you have hopefully a soft landing. And that's my story. So Elizabeth, uh, thank you. Uh, as uh, most of you know, I'm uh, Steve Blank. I teach uh, MSNE 278, the class that surrounds uh, uh, these ETL lectures, Spirit of Entrepreneurship. And uh, uh, we uh, listen to the speakers and go back and actually talk about and analyze uh, um, uh, their discussions. And uh, the class gets to ask the first couple of questions. So today I'm going to kick it off with a, a question you um, almost uh, answered as you were ending. And, and that is, uh, since you've been on the policy side and the government as well, um, how, how did you communicate um, uh, to professional politicians the distinction between actual risk and perception of risk? I mean, as a parent, you know parents uh, nowadays think that someone is going to steal their child. And, and, but if you actually did the statistical analysis, they're more than likely to choke to death and you're feeding them than they will be kidnapped. But no one worries about chopping their Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. What's, if you ask me what scares me the most about my children, I would say drunk driving. Yeah? Okay. So that's, uh, let's uh, start there. How do you communicate the risk to politicians? Uh, by giving them, first, if you have some kind of evaluation, numerical evaluation, you try to give them an idea of how the risks uh, compare uh, to each other. And in fact, I'm, I am I was surprised by how well they understand that. And I've seen an evolution in the last 10 years, perhaps, towards quantification of risk and towards wanting to hear not only one possible alternative, but several. I would say the world of success in government has been with building codes. And uh, why? It's because before uh, the use of probabilistic method, there was a pseudo-quasi-deterministic, and they still is, to look at uh, seismic, uh, seismic hazard. Now, it's, it's a complicated measure that, that's a, a pseudo upper bound of the, uh, of the earthquake damage or earthquake risk at a given uh, spot. The problem is that the probability of getting that kind of uh, maximum credible earthquake is the name of it, was extremely different in different places. 
So if you use that criterion, let's say in Louisiana and you used it in San Francisco, you would spend much too much money in one place, not enough in the other. And the politicians ended up understanding that. I think that Hurricane Katrina was also a wake-up call, and there's now a lot more probabilistic studies being done about it, because they realize that you're never going to have something that will be 100% safe. You have to decide at what height you're going to put these uh, levees. The Dutch, by the way, have been the, uh, the people who have, uh, perhaps in the 50s, after they had a really nasty flooding, began to think in those terms, and that's the kind of domains in which I've seen progress. Next question is, do you believe, uh, even in your uh, tenure in, um, uh, in policy, uh, that the American public uh, has less uh, taste for risk now or more, or are we more risk averse, or, uh, and, and that is, is, is your expertise actually more valued or less? Uh, where are we going? I think that there is more information about uh, all kinds of events happening around the world. So it's not that they are more risk averse is that they are bombarded by bad news. And so what you can do is to help them sort them out. And yes, there's an enormous amount of demand for the kind of field in which I am. In fact, one of my surprises, when the, the current chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff at the head of the armed services of this country uh, wrote a first memo that he handed out to everybody, it was all about risk management. And I thought, that's interesting. He probably doesn't hear it or does not understand it in the same way I do. But I think that there is more and more this idea that there is such thing as risk management. There is no such thing as zero risk. And that perhaps resource allocation and um, setting priorities is important. And uh, I'll just ask you the one last question for me in my class, and then we'll uh, open it up to the audience. Um, Stanford has had a long history of advising the government uh, on various levels of uh, Presidential uh, Science Advisory Board, intelligence community, et cetera. Were you aware of this long history, and were you connected to part of it, or was this a point event? Or, and, and also, what was your uh, biggest surprise about dealing with the government? In, uh, well, first, let's focus on, on the call that I received yeah. when I was asked if I wanted to be on the President's, at that time, Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board. Uh, I said, what in the world is that? And it turns out that I had friends on both sides of the aisle, and I had no idea. I, I was coming there as an outsider who could look with a cold eye at the information that they were getting, and so I did not know much. So my answer to you is I was the innocent, yes, in that, uh, in that domain. Let me say that you learn quickly. You learn quickly by seeing the reasonings, and, and you listen to enough stories that you quickly figure out how you can help, how, the, you, how you would think about it in your world, and how you could inject logic in all that. So um, I was not aware at that time of the long history, although I knew uh, Sid Drell, of course. I knew all, all kinds of people who have been um, John Schultz. All kinds of people in many domains, and in engineering here, who have been influential in, uh, in advising the government. But that's when I discovered how it really worked. And, and yes, I had surprises. And what was your biggest surprise, if I could make it? What was my question. biggest surprise was the naivete or the, uh, the unwillingness uh, of people to recognize uncertainties and to want to hear that things are or are not. And what you're trying to say is, I do not know, but I can tell you what are roughly the chances, given the information that I have. Now, do you prefer me to tell you that they are or are not? No, of course not. But that was my biggest surprise, that they were so, um, the world in black and white, 
which is not the way I've seen it for many years, as you can imagine. Okay. Let's open it up to the uh, class in the room. Elizabeth, just pick um, the questions for Elizabeth. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security, for example. So, uh, security. The, the question that was asked was, is there ways of using these methods in other parts of the government, for example, in terms of security? The Department of Homeland Security has launched programs to do exactly that. And in fact, um, I have a grant from them just now. And what we're trying to look at, and this is a tiny point, what we're doing is tiny point, but um, it's warning systems in crisis situations. So what we are trying to figure out is all of a sudden, you get a piece of information that's a surprise. That's what I call the needle in a haystack. And you follow up, and what else is there out there? So you have to decide quickly what it is that you would like to know and go look for it, or make a decision very quickly, given the way things evolve. Homeland Security, of course, is also very interested in ranking the threats because it's always the same question. We cannot put our money, we're not immensely rich. And we allocating all the money of Homeland Security uh, across the different states in a uniform way uh, is not very reasonable, even though there are many senators who would love that. So you have to explain and you have to help them think through that question of prioritization. Another one that I'm sure uh, you're very sensitive to, although I've not studied it, is the question of airport security. It is clear that some of the procedures in place have a symbolic value, so you feel protected. Some of them are really effective. And so I know that um, there are lots of people who are working on these kinds of problems, etc. Uh, the food chain security, uh, bioterrorism. There are lots of very good studies done by Larry Wine, for example, he had a business school in that area. Uh, so yes, there's a lot of work going on at Homeland Security in that domain. Yes, Lina. So you are on the board of the public company. Well, I'm on the board of, uh, yes, one. I'm on the board of several companies of various status. I'm on the board of Aerospace Corporation, which is an FFRDC. I'm on the board of InQtel, which is the venture capital uh, of the CIA and other uh, places. I'm also on the board of a small companies, the company that's publicly traded that does desalination of uh, seawater, etc. So these are the kinds of boards in which I sit right now. So the question is, do you bring these processes and approaches to bear in, this, in that environment? Yes. <laughs> so uh, yes, and yes, and yet, even though these sound like, like companies and organizations that are very sensitive to it, it's, uh, it's not a natural way of thinking. And uh, let me give you the example of the aerospace industry beyond uh, aerospace corporation. They are in charge of the security of everything that's launched in this country. So you test and test and test, and you do all kinds of things. At what point do you decide that you have tested enough? But think about it in different context. You go to the hospital, and you get a test. And they say, mm, I see something funny here. And you get a second test, and then you get a third test, and then you keep testing. There is always that question of how much more information do we need, and what is the value of that information? 
The value of that information is linked to the decision that it might support. If it may, might make you change your mind and change your practices, that's where you want to have more risk analysis. If you have reached the point where adding more money into more risk studies is not going to make you change anything, you don't need to invest anymore. So the, the challenge is to work between the risk analyst that can tell you what difference it could make and the decision maker whose risk attitude is what is going to determine the decision based on that information. Two different functions. Yes. You need, I'm sorry, I can't see you very well. So. Let's say, as a risk analyst, I'm generally asked to consider what can go wrong. But when I look at scenarios, I'm very careful. So the question was, how do you introduce the benefits in that balance? As a risk analyst, when I look at the, the consequences of these different scenarios, I have both the risks and the benefits. And if I have the benefits, I am delighted to put them in here. For example, the risk reduction benefits of building goats. At a cost, you're going to have a benefit, which is a risk reduction. So this is a focus on benefits, even though I'm talking about risk. There is another effect that, in fact, I also put in the scenarios, <coughs> and it is the redistribution effects. That is because, in some cases, some people are going to incur the, uh, the costs or the risks and other the benefits. Think of a large dam, and you live on the path of what would be the wave in case the dam breaks. You're going to take a lot of the risk, and there's going to be a lot of benefits to the rest of the population, but there is a redistribution here. And the risk analysis results have to, if, it, if they are well done, have to reflect that point also. So the benefits, yes, also enter uh, the consequences, and you have to be careful to make sure that you give a complete picture. Yes? That's an interesting one. And on top of that, add my accent, OK? <laughs> so imagine there you are in Washington talking to people at the Pentagon who really would like to hear your story. And it's true, you're in a technical field, you're a woman, and you, uh, and you have a strange accent. I would say a German accent in a male is generally easier to carry around. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> in the technical field. Well, let's not make it. So uh, what happened? I really liked math and physics. And so I was undeterred. My, it, in my family, let's say, they thought it was not a very feminine thing to do. Uh, the medical area would have been more. Uh, but I, I really liked math and physics, then computer science. And I really got into that. Then I came to Stanford. And I got more and more involved in things that I found really interesting, because they were very practical. And they were, they were really connected to life. And I think that's what I really liked about it. And then once you have done a few studies that people believe in, I believe in it, then it's a snowball. And you have more and more credibility. What's difficult is the beginning. And what you really need at that point is a very good support system. And I'm happy to say that it's exactly what I had. 
And that's why on top of that, when you add two children, it becomes a bit more complicated. Then you don't sleep very much, and you make sure that uh, <laughs> you, everything gets done, that you say yes to things that you have to say yes to, and you actually do it. And when you can't, you say no. But when you say yes, you actually do it. So it's building uh, credibility and making people trust you. I don't know. Apart from that, the rest we can discuss later. Yes? So um, entrepreneurs tend to take more risks than non-entrepreneurs. And uh, so my question is, is it because they are more risk averse, or do they have more risk uh, greater time for risk analysis, or is it just that they're blind to risk? You know, the fact is that I do not know if entrepreneurs really take that many risks. What I've seen, it's, it's uh, let me start. About the entrepreneur, there is the banking system, the financing system. What is clear to me is that in this country, the venture capitalists take a lot of risks. And that I've seen, and they generally have a pretty good idea of where they are going with this one. In Europe, it's bankers. And they are not willing to take the same level of risks. And it's an entirely different world. Now, but entrepreneurs themselves, uh, generally, very often, they start with an idea, a technical idea. And I think part of the success is to make sure that they have a great team with them. And it's not only the technical part that dominates that small company, but also, of course, the management part, and to have good managers and good technicians together. And I think that's what the success of their risk-taking and their willingness to take risk, and the willingness of the venture capitalists to be behind them, that is to have teams. So perhaps it is that the first requirement for good, venture capital, for good uh, entrepreneurs is to be team builders. And teams of builders with many talents, uh, the management part, the technical part, and selling the thing. Because after all, uh, without a market, you're not going very far. Yes? I just wanted to know, um, when you uh, get out of your big failure, like for example, the Homeland Security initiative in Atlanta, do you scratch out everything and start from the beginning? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, where do I start? Do I start with what I know, or do I start from scratch? That I don't understand your question very well. So, when you get, when you uh, confront a very big failure after a big planning, and uh, you don't know where to start again, do you scratch off what you had, or do you, or do you work on top of that? I start from scratch. <coughs> so when when you realize that you're on the wrong track, start from scratch. That would be my. Uh, that would be my recommendation. When you realize that you have, don't have the right formulation of a problem, go to see other experts, go see what it is that you're missing, and do not get uh, stuck in a rut. Great. Let's, if, if there's one more question, we'll take it. And if not, uh, there are one more question. Okay. Going once, twice, three times. Elizabeth, thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.